Hi, this is Kim, and today I'm going to talk with choice theory parenting expert Philip Mott, who's a former disengaged student turned teacher who found it harder and harder to fit into the educational system the more he adopted Glasser's choice theory. He spends his free time interacting with struggling parents in various groups, and he's in the early stages of launching his own coaching program, helping parents understand the issues that keep them from expressing their unconditional love. His perspective has been welcomed into the Choice Theory family as he demonstrated in his certification process how reality therapy principles could be practiced with children under the age of four. Thank you so much, Philip, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Excited for this podcast, too. I'm really excited to talk to you. I was sharing with you before we actually went on air how much I really like following you on social media. It's so amazing to see a dad as involved in his kids' learning process as you are. It's just truly wonderful to watch you let them take the lead in their learning, and you're just kind of along for the ride. And and I... I really love that. I wonder if you could share a little bit about your thinking as it relates to how you're educating your kids. Yeah. So, and, and it is a ride, isn't it? <laughs> it looks like it. I'm, I'm a very distant observer, but it yeah. looks so much fun. Oh my goodness. I'll try to unpack a little bit of that. Back before my wife and I had kids, we were both really prepared to be disciplinarians. We saw the challenges in the classrooms that I was observing and teaching in. We observed the challenges that were out in the world. And we really thought we needed to kind of rule with that iron scepter, so to speak. And I can remember one of my friends was telling me a story about a child who was being disrespectful to his parent. And this was like right before we had our first. And I could just feel my blood boil about how hard I would hit that child thinking Mm. about that. The same month that we gave birth to our first, I picked up a copy of William Glasser's Choice Theory. So this was December 2013. As you can probably imagine, I was floored. I had always been a relationship person. My mom has confirmed that through several just stories, kind of talking with her and reflecting on life. She said I was always just very aware of other people's feelings. My oldest brother was spanked a lot. He was four years older than me. And I can remember running up into my room and crying when he was spanked. That happened on several occasions. He was a pretty rebellious kid. (laughs) (laughs) So he got spanked a lot. And I didn't. I mean, I was a pretty good kid. Going into parenting, I was ready to be that hard dad. And then reading choice theory and then starting to try to implement those things in the classroom. And I was starting to connect with the kids a lot better, but my administrators were looking down on me and my peers were looking down on me like, you can't do this. You have to keep these kids in line. And all these ideas were new to me, but I was just trying my best. So Glasser was really a big part of the beginning. And then we came across some other stuff that taught us how to respect a child's freedom. As you know, Glasser said that freedom is one of the five basic needs. And from an educator's perspective, I think it's the most overlooked need when adults look at kids. If you saw those five needs, power, love and belonging, survival, fun, and freedom, I think most parents and adults would look at that list and say, kids don't need freedom. They need structure. But when the world is that new, 
you need as much freedom as you can have because your body, your whole spirit is driven to discover and explore. And so then we learned some new things around the time our oldest was one about self-directed learning. And we were like, oh, this is right in line with what Glasser wrote about. I'll never forget it. We sat in Noah's playroom. So he was one at the time. And the book that we read said just five minutes, just watch him for five minutes and don't say anything. Don't do anything. Don't help him with anything. Just let him be. And we watched for 45 minutes as our oldest entertained himself without looking to us once. And our jaws were on the floor. We have never seen a child maintain their own curiosity for such a long period of time. And we were hooked. So that's been five years ago now, and we haven't looked back. Wow. So does that answer the question a little bit? Well, (laughs) Well, it does. And I feel like I know a little more background than our listeners would know. So how old are your kids now and how many do you have? So we have three kids. They're six, four, and basically two. She's 20 months. So we we call her two now. Almost two. Are they in preschool? Do they go to public school, your oldest? So we homeschool. We're blessed to have the resources to be able to do that. The way some people respond to us, you would think we were cursed. They're like, oh, how do you do that? I could never do that with my children. (laughs) (laughs) That's because they're still trying to control their children instead of allow their children to learn. A lot of times, yeah. You also have a Facebook group that's for parents and educators. It's intended just for parents. One of the things I felt like I needed to do was I was writing about education a lot. And it just struck me that my content could come across as really condescending and disingenuous because I'm not in the classroom anymore. And quite frankly, I never saw these ideas really put into place in the classroom. So I felt like I could no longer speak to that job title and that career because I know that educators are doing it, but not me. So I felt like I needed to step back and speak from my own experience. So I really shifted toward just parents, but I'm still connected with a lot of educators and about a third of our group is educators now. So I can always hook them up with other people. Gino, who you know, is in that group and he's a a really great example where he saw these ideas put into place for years in a school setting. So I'm definitely going to be leaning on people like him who have worked in education and have seen these principles play out not just in a semester or over a year, but he's seen over the life of the school that he was running, which is such a powerful testimony. Right. So if you were talking to parents, if you had to say three things that you do differently as a parent now than what you would have done as that strong, tough, disciplinary dad. Yeah. I'm glad you said three because I actually have exactly three. (laughs) (laughs) I'll use the broad brushstrokes first. How we see kids matters. So the name of our group is called Kids Are People. It's a really obvious statement, but it's also quite profound because if we really stop and think about how we treat kids, we would not treat people that way. And so going through some exercise with a good friend of mine who has a lot of experience in marketing, he really helped me kind of narrow down that message. So I'd say number one is how we see them really matters. And we have to think of them in terms of not necessarily equals. We have to think of them as people. And what that means practically, the starting point, you could almost consider it like the golden rule. Or just I would tell a parent to tell themselves, 
anything that would help a relationship thrive between two adults is also going to help a relationship thrive between me and my child. Patience, support, listening, negotiating about things, having boundaries, saying no. I can't believe how many times I come across on parent groups where the parent is saying, what should I do if my kid keeps hitting me? And I'm like, leave the room. Why are you telling them? Like, you wouldn't let your spouse just hit you. I mean, some people do. That's a whole nother conversation. But it's a person. Like, you can communicate on that level. The second thing is how you approach them matters. There's a principle I learned in first aid that if you're approaching a child under the age of 12 and you don't know this person, you always touch their foot first. You touch the furthest thing from their face and you ask them, is it okay if I help you? I think I extend that to my children too, is that I don't assume that I have the right to steal a kiss or to steal a hug or to steal affection. Even at the youngest age, they can answer as early as 18 months if they want a hug or not. And so the way I approach them is completely, I can't say completely because I'm not perfect, but I really try to help them maintain their dignity and maintain that principle that their body belongs to them. As much as I'd love a good night kiss and a good night hug every night, I don't get it very often. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me, I have eight grandchildren. I feel particularly blessed with those eight Mm -hmm. people in my life. But when they were younger, especially from maybe infants to about a year old, they didn't see me often enough to be able to remember me from one time to the next. And yeah. I know that my, my children and even my daughter-in-laws were big on, oh, give grandma a kiss. And I'd be like, right. no, they don't have to give me a kiss. If they want to give me a kiss, I'm here, but please don't make them. I think it's such a respectful thing to teach kids that they don't have to. I, I remember one of my earliest childhood memories was of me being forced to kiss these two people I'd never met. They Mm. were my father's grandparents and they were old and they were bent over Mm -hmm. and they pinched my cheek. Oh, you're so cute. And I was terrified of them. And I remember I was being forced by my family, my mother, my father, who I thought I could trust to kiss these terrifying people. And I did it, but it's just crazy to me that that's one of my earliest childhood memories. Of course, it would be because it was connected to a pretty strong emotion. But I love that you're doing that with your kids. Yeah, and there's not many grandparents that I've, I've come across that are really encouraging their own children to respect that principle. So. I applaud you for that too, because that's not easy to do. It's painful. You know, you want those kids to love you and want you, but you know what's crazy? The less I force that, the more I get. They're so happy to see me now, but you know, in the Mm -hmm. beginning, it's like, no, you know, they'd want me to hold the baby and I'd be happy to hold the baby. But if the baby was screaming before it even got into my arms, I'd be like, no, no, it's okay. I'll wait till they're ready. Yeah. No. Yeah. To round out that question you were asking, that third one would be just the environment that we create. Some people don't like the parallel or the metaphor, but I really, kids are still organisms. So I imagine we're planting something in the ground. It's a plant. Just like a plant, they absorb what's in their environment. 
if there are toxins and there's toxicity in our language, then they're going to absorb that. Just like a plant, they can't just uproot themselves and move themselves to a different place. And what you've probably found in your practice is that once the kids reach a certain age, they learn how to uproot themselves and they do move to a different place. And then the parents are confused or the teachers are confused about why. And it's because the adults did not give them a nurturing environment where they could dig their roots down and grow. They stifled them. What's really upsetting about that is that the adults don't even realize that they're doing it. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm willing to put a little bit more work on the side and say, like, I need to set up some kind of coaching practice. I didn't want to go back and go through the counseling route. And I'm not trying to take the place of that. I really want to catch people before they feel like they need counseling. Because when I talk to counselors, that's what they say is like, people wait too long to come to counseling. I really hope to be in between for someone of maybe it saves them from having things happen to get bad enough where they feel like they need counseling. So what kind of things would you help parents with as a coach? I help with understanding what we can control. That's one of the things that I really pulled from Glasser is I think it was Bob Wobelding who said he liked the briefcase metaphor better and Glasser really liked the car. The front wheels of the car are our thoughts and our actions. And those are the things that we can actually steer. And if we try to steer the thoughts and actions of our kids, then they're going to respond just like people do. They don't like it. And they're going to push back just like people do. It's not going to look the same because it's a kid. They don't have the language or the context to act exactly like an adult, but they're a living thing. I mean, they're going to try to survive and meet their needs. One thing that separates me from other life coaches or parent coaches would be, I don't want to focus on the kid's behavior because there's really nothing we can do about that. I want to focus on our behavior because every time I'm most proud of myself as a parent and every time I'm least proud of myself as a parent is when I either am or am not controlling my thoughts or actions. I'm not owning those thoughts or actions. When I'm letting myself get bothered, I end up saying things that I don't mean and I say things that I shouldn't say to them. So that's the main thing that I want to focus on with parents is like if they open up a call and say, well, My kid keeps running around the house and I'm going to come back to, okay, so what are you doing? What are you thinking during that? And what are you doing about that? Because running isn't a bad thing. If you can give them a, a space to run that's acceptable to you, that's what I'd say about that. I love the idea of talking to parents about what they can control. I'm working on starting a movement I'm collecting people who want to help me. And uh, my movement is called Radical Responsibility and Awesome Appreciation. So the idea is you take radical responsibility for what you have control over. And that's everything you do and think and the things you don't do. Yeah. And then the awesome appreciation is for those things in your life that you didn't ask for. Some are great. Some are mediocre. Some are terrible but finding something to appreciate about all of it, even the bad stuff. So if your kid is doing something you don't want them to do, I call it the glow. What are the gifts, lessons, opportunities, and wisdom that you can take from Mm -hmm. that situation? When you take radical responsibility and then you find awesome appreciation for the rest, there's nothing left to feel victimized about or upset about, depressed, unhappy, angry, 
There's no reason to be any of those things. And then when you can get rid of that stuff, imagine what kind of a present parent you could be with children. Yep. I'm on board. Uh, I've come across that term, at least radical responsibility lately, and it's fantastic. I recently read a book by Gay Hendricks called The Big Leap. Oh, I love The Big Leap. Yeah. So I just learned about that and I read that recently. And the thing that he talked about with radical responsibility was a marriage isn't 50-50, it's Mm 100-100. And um, so my wife and I have really been spending the last several weeks digging in deeper and thinking about what William Glasser talked about with the solving circle which some of your audience may be familiar with. And that was a huge help in our marriage too, but getting us to the point, and we've been married um, almost 13 years now. uh, So getting us to the point that we can really take full ownership of our own actions and thoughts. And I said, I'm not going to, I'm going to butcher the way I said it, but I was telling her that when I get frustrated, it's because I'm not willing to own the children's behavior. I'm afraid to take 100% responsibility for that behavior. I don't want to own it. And that was a big aha moment for us. There were other things that her and I were talking about and she was like, yeah, I do that a lot too. It's been really rich. I mean, we still have a lot of work to do, but that's a long-term relationship for you, right? (laughs) That's called life and it's called marriage, right? That's right. It doesn't end. As long as you're alive, you have things to work on for sure. What would you say is the best gift a parent can give to their child? That's a really good question, challenging me to boil it down even further. I said earlier that freedom is the most overlooked need. I'm going to split it into two things. And maybe they're both the same thing, but I think it's worth saying. It's curiosity and support. Because anyone that I know of that's been successful even if it didn't come from their own family, they had people close to them that were curious about what they're doing and they supported it. None of us make it alone. And if you have people in your life that you care about that do not seem to care or be interested in what you're doing, it is really hard to stick through any kind of valleys. You could probably boil that down and say, well, maybe it's just curiosity because without curiosity, you wouldn't have support. I don't know. I just wanted to say both of those words, but I think the greatest gift that we can give our kids is our curiosity because we'll listen more, we'll support more, we'll negotiate better. So if they say, well, I want the cotton candy, instead of immediately going, no, you can't have it, which there's nothing wrong with saying no, we can at least pause and say, I wonder why you want that. That little pause does so much for our relationship. It gives us empathy for our kids gives us a moment to remember what we remember about being a kid. That's my final answer. Ding. (laughs) (laughs) Curiosity. (laughs) Okay. If people want to get a hold of you, Philip, what is the best way for them to do that? How do they join this group that you have? What would you tell any listener that wants to know more from you? If you want to know more, it kind of depends on just what platform you're on. The, the main platforms I'm on are Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and then Instagram. I'm also experimenting with some TikTok, but I don't actually do any dancing. That's kind of a fun platform, but I'm, do, I'm not doing much on there. And the name of the group is Kids Are People, and that's on Facebook. And we have a Facebook page that I started as Kids Are People as well. Can anyone um, join? Yep, anyone can join. And especially, I think we're looking for members who have kind of completed that early childhood journey 
and can offer their wisdom there. It's one of the reasons that I invited you there because even though you're a grandparent, so you're still back in some of that, you can look at your experience with your grandkids through a completely new lens. And hopefully some of our members can appreciate that. Now, if it's a parent listening to me, then I would direct them to my coaching program to at least read about that, which is we.r.unconditionalparents.com. And I kind of describe that program. So I'll personally walk you through three or four phone sessions where we'll talk about the way we see. I'll teach you how to see kids, how to approach kids, and then how to kind of evaluate the environment that you're creating for them. And then you get access to the Facebook group as well. So the price I'm kind of shooting for is around $150 to $250. It's a one-time fee. I haven't looked into launching like a membership fee because what I really want this coaching program to be is I want it to be a teach you how to fish kind of thing. All these parenting groups that I'm in, you have the same people posting like similar questions all the time. And it's like, okay, if this system is so good, why do they have to keep coming back for advice? And so I really built this from the ground up. This is a teach you how to fish. If you understand these principles, then yeah, you might have some situations where you want some advice on, but you're going to understand the building blocks for that basic child psychology that's going to help you know what to do and how to readjust your own behavior. And then the real surprising thing about all of this is that the child's behavior kind of falls in line with yours. It's really weird. Like we don't try to fix our kids' behavior. We constantly fix our own. And then they just follow our lead. It reminds me of, I was with a person and their dog at an obedience training. Mm -hmm. And the person running the program said, there are no bad dogs. There's people who make bad decisions. And I think that that's so true with kids as well. There are no bad kids. If your child is having difficult or trying behavior, I'm not saying it's the parent's responsibility or the parent's fault, but there's something that as the parent you could do differently that would affect that child in a different way and lead to maybe a better behavior. What type of parent would you hope would come to your coaching program? Because to me, even if it's $250, the high end of your price range, that seems little to pay to learn what you need to learn to raise healthy, adjusted kids. So what type of parent would you think would want to come? I want to give a shout out also because of your, your call out there to No Bad Kids. So Janet Lansbury wrote a book called No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame probably the most practical book I've ever read on parenting. She was an early supporter in my career. I shared a story about my son in a Facebook group that we were in and she just loved it so much and she shared it on her blog. And that was the first thing where I was like, I could do this. I could write about this. That was very exciting. I wanted to give her a shout out, but the kind of parent that I think is going to fit my program is the kind of parent that is thinking already like, They know that there's something wrong with punishments. They know there's something wrong with bribes, but they don't know what to put in place of it. And they have a sense that it's probably related to their own behavior. But again, everyone that they're watching is shaming and rewarding and punishing their kids. So there's no models out there. So that would be the first kind of parent I'm looking for. Ideally, that parent would have at least one child that is in the age of zero to 12. 
I think if these ideas are new and you have a teenager, it's really difficult to just start doing them. It's not too late, but if I have a parent that reaches out that has a teenager, I would really try to say, we can do the program, but you guys need to look into counseling too, because you're way beyond just early childhood development. This isn't just a person, this is a young adult and you're treating them like many people would treat a toddler. So yeah, having a kid that is zero to 12 and then someone that's is not coming to me and saying, I want to fix these three behaviors. I mean, I have that in my literature that if you are looking to fix behaviors, uh, this is not the program for you because there's all kinds of parenting programs that are focused on that. If it's a parent that fits those criteria, then I think we'd be a really good match. Thank you. And is there anything that I didn't ask that you want to mention to people before we close this out? No, I don't think so. I just, I appreciate anyone who listened to this point, listened to us ramble to this point. I'd say uh, thank you. And, and thank you for believing in me. You met me, what was it, about two years ago? I think that sound so. about right? As I was going through my choice theory certification. And uh, I just remember you were kind of awestruck by these ideas immediately. And that means a lot to someone like me. I feel very isolated from fellow teachers, from fellow parents. My wife is a bit of an introvert too. So sometimes I kind of blame her for, for my isolation, which I need to not do. And so it felt so good to meet you and have you say, you really need to be publishing. You really need to be getting these ideas out there. And we even talked about my eventual book, which I still have the plans for. I haven't lost that dream. So that was that would be the you only thing I'd want to know I have I'd a writer's make. group, right, Philip? I have an online writer's group. You know? Oh, now I didn't know that. I didn't <laughs> know you did that. When you're ready. I'll have to join it. Yeah. I think it'll be good for you. Yeah. Anyway. I really want to thank you for being with us today. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with the listeners. And most of all, I want to thank you for what you're doing with your children, because this is something that is going to change a whole generation. And it's just such important work. Many of us become parents. These kids come with no instruction manual and we get no training. And it's probably yeah. the most important job we ever do. The fact that you have an instruction manual and that you have some training that can take the guesswork and the craziness out of parenting for people. I just think it's amazing. So thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. I hope you'll tune in next week when I'm going to be talking about what kind of parent are you? Talk to you then. <laughs>